0: Did you ever wonder about those gatekeepers in universities and business schools and, and other schools? These people that uh, decide who gets in and who doesn't get in, we call them admissions directors and uh, they have a big job, especially when you get to some schools that just have so many applicants and there's so many talented people, but there's not enough space for, for everyone. Well, my guest today is Luke Pena and he is the man in charge of a team at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College in um, selecting the class each. Year. And one of the things that's so interesting about, about Luke is when you look at his background, and we'll talk to him about you know where he came from and how he thought about things, and the role of school uh, in his own life. Uh, no one, I don't think, would have expected him to be the uh, to be sitting in his seat today as the head of um, head of admissions at uh, at at the Tuck School at Dartmouth. But uh, but he is, and he has an incredible uh, incredible history, incredible d- sense of sense of accomplishment, and has brought a lot of uh, innovative, interesting ideas into uh, into what it takes to get into uh, into a Pop business School. Let's bring Luke Pena into our studio. Welcome to the SIDCAST, and my guest today is Luke Pena. Hi, hey, Luke. Hey. How's it going? It's going real well. Good, good. And so Luke is the guy in charge of admissions at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. And so uh, what's the acceptance rate, uh, for, uh, for, for kids, uh, young people who want to come to Tuckway. Yeah. our acceptance rate right now is about one in five, just a shade over 20%. So one in five will get accepted, and then they don't all come, as, as a lot of people don't understand that, right? Like a certain number come in, and then there's a yield. So tell us a little bit about how that works.
1: That's right, yeah. We have the tables turned. So when applicants apply to us, of course, they're waiting for good news from us. And then as soon as we admit them, they now have the power, and we're waiting for good news from them. So we work for several weeks to... Connect them with students, connect them
0: with the community, and it usually ends up being a little over one and two to say yes to talk. So is it fifty uh, percent then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, is it the case then that w- that students are in the mode of selling? Uh, until we say yes, and then it switches completely the other way around, and we're selling to them.
1: Sure, yeah. Well, you know, we, we like to think of it not so much as sales, but helping them see the community and helping inform them about what the community has to offer. I know that when I'm talking with students, yeah, I tell them the great things about Tuck. I also try to help them see what the challenges they might face might be so that they can make the good decision. But sure, it is, of yeah, course, right? us trying to say this is a great place to study. Sure,
0: sure. Why, why does somebody come to Tuck? Is there a profile? a standard profile of some type or different uh, kind of type types of people that come to tuck
1: sure well we've updated the very language we put around this over the last summer we we're talking about how we want people here at tuck who are smart who are nice who are accomplished and who are aware. And I think these are characteristics that have long defined the community. But of course, people come to Tuck for the um, immersion in a place like Hanover without the distractions and the disruptions of the city. People come for the focus on the MBA program without the PhD, the executive MBA, the part-time MBA, the undergrad program. Of course, people come for the size. Well, 285 students in each class, that's a very distinct size mm-hmm. to get to know the people around you as well as the faculty and the staff here.
0: Yeah. So you said you're not really selling, but you're selling right now. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Natural inclination. Forgive Natural things. inclination. So, okay, uh, you said one of the criteria you look for is NICE. hmm What's that about? Sure. Yeah. We got a lot of attention and a lot of questions
1: about this over the past summer. And you know, it's a provocative word, and I think that's intentional. We wanted to get people talking. We wanted people to ask exactly what you did. What's that about? What does that mean mm-hmm. at the Tuck School? And when you look at how we define it, it's about investing in others investing in relationships, caring about the success, not just for yourself, but for the people around you. Mm -hmm. And we believe that that is a fundamental quality to good leadership. And so if we see the evidence of that and the demonstration of that in candidate profile, we believe that they're going to be a good fit for this place and they're going to be a wise leader going forward. So there's all kinds of connotations with the word, which is why I think people get uh, in a mode of asking questions. But if you look at the way we define it, I think Mm -hmm. it's hard to argue that you wouldn't want a leader who demonstrates those qualities.
0: Uh, what about the kind of take-no-prisoners uh, leader that we read about all the time, the Jack Welch type of leader if you want to go back, and uh, uh, and someone with tremendous success, uh, but nice not the word you think of uh, to describe them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, we think about how people are motivated, right?
1: what motivates people around you to follow the vision, to follow the strategy that you set forward, and... You know, there may be a place for a leader like that, but that's not the kind of leader I want to work with. That's not the leader that motivates me. That's not the leader that gets me excited about what's possible. Yeah. And so, you know, if I just think about the kind of leader that I want to follow, um, and I think about you know, some of the very work that you've written about in Superbosses, right, and mm-hmm. you think about that kind of leader, sure, the, the personalities may differ, but the orientation towards investing in success that, to me, is really fundamental. That's what I want to follow. Um, and I truly believe that the Tuck School is positioned to create leaders
0: like that who will inspire others. So let me, let me ask you this. because uh, So I'm a, I'm a professor here, so uh, we're talking shop a little bit uh, mm-hmm. uh, today. Uh, and I've seen, I'm not the only one who, who has said this, but I've seen for a long time uh, culture among students. It's very powerful, very, uh, very cooperative, very collaborative, but they don't challenge each other very much. And, and that gets to this niceness thing. I mean, it's, to me, it's not being nice to not challenge somebody else. But I think that that sometimes gets mixed up into, you know, you want to treat everyone great and you don't want to kind of be, have sharp elbows, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, what I see in the classroom a lot uh, are, are people that, and I joke about it in the class, and students are laughing. And they laugh, you know, when people laugh in the way that's almost um, self-conscious laugh, they know that i 'm calling them out on something they know it's true, like for example, um you know when you do a case study it 's a very collaborative interactive class, and a lot of people are i 'm kind of like a choreographer during that time as opposed to telling everybody here 's what I think uh, i want to get i want to I want them to figure it out on their own that's called learning right and and so often i'll get you know Mary will say we're we're well well building on what Joan said uh, and the word building on and, and then they might say something quite different, but they have to they have to couch it in a term that is, that is culturally or socially acceptable. And I, I don't think that's a great thing. What's your take on it?
1: Yeah, well, I agree with you on that point. And if we think about nice, we think about what does investing in a relationship mean? And so there are times in a relationship, whether in the classroom or whether socially or whatever it may be, there's a time when you need to encourage and support. But if you really care and are invested in a relationship, there's a time when you need to challenge. There's a time when you need to push back and there's a time when you need to say, in service of this relationship, I need to disagree. I need to push back. I Mm -hmm. need to intervene. I need to share a perspective that's different from yours for the good of the relationship so we can come to an understanding. And sometimes I think people, when they hear the word nice and look at the definition, do forget that element of it. Um, And so I agree with the point that you made. And we are looking increasingly so in admissions for candidates who Understands and have the emotional awareness, if you will, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that there is a time when you need to lift others up.
2: Yeah. There's
1: also a time when you need to push hard. Mm. And that is in service of the relationship. It's not in service of yourself. It's not in service of your own needs at the expense of others. But it's a belief that by doing this, we mm-hmm. all will be stronger and we all will achieve better outcomes. And so, we'd like to see more of that in the classroom. And so, we'd like to
0: find more of that in the applicant pool. From a from a leadership point of view, I I I, I think it makes perfect sense. And it's one of these things that you need you need opposites. The best leaders combine two things that are very very different. Um, I think we even use the term confident humility. I've written a lot about that uh, myself. You want confidence, you want humility. They sound like opposites, but you need them together. And I think what you're talking about here is someone that is supportive of others, um, wants to help other people, but can come down pretty clear on challenging someone uh, if they're just not performing or saying something that doesn't make sense. Uh, And and so it's got the the hard and the soft, the yin and the yang going on. So I think that makes sense. How do you find people like that?
1: Yeah. You look for examples, you look for demonstrated behavior. So we are asking the references and the recommenders who apply uh, for, for the candidates who apply to this mm-hmm. school, tell us about a time um, when somebody had to work with difficult people, challenging people, mm-hmm. how did they show up in that way? And so you start to see the behaviors and the thought processes yeah. that inform how candidates deal with mm-hmm. challenging interpersonal relationships And do they end up acting in their own self-interest or do they act in ways that strengthen that relationship Mm -hmm. and build stronger relationships even when it may be difficult? We're also asking candidates to give an example of their own about a time when they invested in someone else's success Mm -hmm. and... A lot of the critics of the essay will say, well, of course, candidates are going to play up their own investment in others. Yes, sure. But when you read several thousand of these, you really start to see meaningful differences between people who are just telling a story for a story's sake and for people who genuinely and truly believe in that. Of course, then we interview our candidates as well. And our interviewers...
0: Everyone gets interviewed?
1: We give everyone the opportunity to initiate their own, but the string attached is they have to come to campus. Mm -hmm. So we want candidates to come and see Tuck, and it's beauty and the wonderful setting that we have here. And so if you choose to come to campus, you can initiate your own. If you can't come to campus, then we don't guarantee you an interview, but we will invite you to interview virtually if we read your application and think you're very strong. But for those candidates who do interview, we're also asking questions about what is their orientation towards the relationships that they have with others. Mm-hmm. And so getting together all of these data points, you start to string together a narrative and see wh- for whom is this a pattern of behavior versus for whom is this something that they're just checking a box to try right. to demonstrate something sure. to us.
0: This, this is really interesting because um, we've talked about analytics in uh, in, in in another, in a couple other podcast episodes in the context of sports, uh, which is a gigantic thing, you know, the money ball logic. And uh, and even in my own one of my own classes, we talk about how do you know if somebody's good or not? How do you know if somebody's... A, a leader has leadership potential and there are a lot of ways to answer that but the two biggest buckets are kind of hardcore analytics you know you could you could measure the bat speed uh, uh, um, as the ball as uh, the ball, the speed of the ball and the, and the trajectory of the ball as it as it leaves the bat and that tells you something about the probability of what's going to happen uh, you could uh, you could measure in in, in hockey you know how, how much time you're around the puck there's there are a lot of um, analytics that are data driven what you're describing it seems to me is it's the other side. It's yeah. It's based on experience. There's a lot of a lot of understanding, but it's subjective. And um, so the question is: first of all, is that accurate? And then the second is: um, can we move towards a more quote unquote analytical approach to try to tap into what you're what you're what you're trying to get from these one thousand essays that you're reading.
1: Sure. I think building a class in high stakes admission for a community like this necessarily requires a combination of both data analytics and human intuition. And so we have some of the analytics pieces. This is why we look at things like grades and we look at test scores and we look at uh, people's advancement and their progression in the job. Uh, How are people being compensated relative to standards in their industry? Things that have a clear numerical figure to them. And yet I also think there are pieces of the human experience that perhaps someday we'll be able to codify and Mm -hmm. use analytics for. And I just haven't seen that we're there yet Mm -hmm. in that assessment. And so this is why we still have people reading the applications, looking for evidence, looking Mm -hmm. for examples. Now, I do think these are data points, qualitative data points, if you will. But we do think of ourselves as looking for um, evidence, right? So ar- almost archaeological, if you will, mm-hmm. like digging through the application mm-hmm. and saying, okay, do we find this evidence of NICE? Right. Do we find this evidence of AWARE? And we're stacking them up. And so it's not hardcore mm-hmm. analytics in the way that you described, mm-hmm. but we are thinking about who shows the greatest cumulative number of data points right. on these particular criteria and then, how do we see who actually demonstrates this and who um, has a deficiency mm-hmm. or has a void of them yeah. so you 're right that this isn 't a, a yeah. mathematical equation or an algorithm
0: and maybe it shouldn't it shouldn 't be to, to boil down a person a human being 's potential into some into some number, although there's plenty of sci-fi shows uh, that seem to like to do that. Uh, like, uh, you ever see the show Black Mirror? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, it's very popular with uh, my, uh, I guess, millennials and my nephew, and he told me to, he recommended it, and I saw one episode, it was like unbelievable, um, about ratings. Everyone gave everyone else a rating. Kind of what we do now, except in the extreme. You walk past somebody, and and, and, and you automatically give them, a, give them a rating. And it's such a bizarre thing, even though we're moving that way. And I think actually... It's a bit of an aside, but in China, aren't they trying to measure some type of social presence or social media metric for each person? Part of it is to control people, um, and, and and for yeah, for to control people. But they're trying to do that. So I, I get why we don't want to go. You know, and almost philosophically, it's not not a great thing to think of. On The other hand, that's the way the world is is going, uh, and uh, um, and you think about. You think about it as research. You, you said it's like ar- archaeological almost, right? So I, I see the analogy to kind of how I do some of my own research, where you're getting a sample of, in my case, it might be companies or leaders or CEOs or whatever. You're, in your case, it would be you know, applicants to business school. And, uh, and then you're collecting and measuring a bunch of uh, metrics, some of which are very subjective. And then at the end, you got a, it's a pattern recognition process. You know, what's the pattern that you're, that you're seeing? Um, and is that the pattern that that you want? Um, and I know how hard it is from a research uh, uh, research point of view. So um, I could see how would be would be challenging. And I'm sure people are listening and saying, "Yeah, I get that, Luke. I understand that." But I, I don't know how you. It, it, it's, there's got to be a lot of guesswork involved in this. I mean, sure. What do, you, what do you, what? You, you? You've heard it all by now. So when when especially when somebody is not accepted, but even even without. You know, there's a, there, there's a lot of guesswork here. It's a little voodoo science going on here, no? Yeah,
1: well, it's human intuition, and we're trying to understand the human experience that people have mm. had. It's not a perfect process. Yeah. Right? And the process is not – I've not seen anybody design it in a way that can be absolutely perfect, and that's Okay. right? That's okay. Because the good news is Tuck is a wonderful business school and I think it's the best. And yet there are other great communities out there. Mm -hmm. And I know that the candidates that don't end up at Tuck are going to end up at a great place, right? And so I feel comfortable knowing that people will find the community that's right for them. But that's the other element of building the class Mm -hmm. is that we're also assessing candidates, not just in absolute terms, but Mm -hmm. also relative to the opportunities they've been given, Mm -hmm. which is really important. Mm -hmm. We have some candidates who have been given every opportunity. And so there is some expectation that they will have achieved a great deal with those opportunities we have others who are coming from um, very little means and low opportunity and so the ability to perform relative to the context in which they found themselves Mm -hmm. that's something that we're constantly calibrating for and then we're thinking about how the pieces of a community in this case the wonderful people come together right and so there's an element when we think about 285 people coming together how will the community form? How will people um, react to one another? And so, yes, we are guessing at that, but we do often have lots of data and feedback from you and your fellow faculty, from the MBA program Mm -hmm. office, from Mm -hmm. our career services team Mm -hmm. that help us get better about understanding what are the behaviors Um, we can look for that predict success here at the community, and what are the behaviors that might predict Uh, struggle
0: so i I hear that and i I like that and i'm hearing well that's almost like a machine learning type of thing maybe without the machine because we haven't figured that part out and as you say maybe we we don't want to figure that out but machine learning is about new every bit of data that comes in um, reinforces and adjusts and allows you to improve your algorithm so it requires you to capture a lot of data so you talked about, you know, career services or faculty feedback and other feedback. How, um, how, how good are we at, at collecting that type of data? It doesn't have to be just Tuck because you, you're connected to, you know, a group of, of, of other business schools, leading business schools, and I'm sure I, I know there's a lot of conversation about how to do this. But it seems to me that if we're going to get better at figuring out whether we're, we're predicting the type of outcome we want, Um, based on a definition of what we think is a great leader and the impact we want our students to have. We need to keep funneling data back to keep improving it. So what What, what are we doing there?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And and this is where analytics has a lot of potential. Mm. I I think one of the points that just lands on me as you say that, we are trying to enroll 285 outstanding students, but not just 285 students, period. The 285 students who are best for Tuck. Right. And so there is a sense of needing to find a match. And that's yeah. where the feedback from the community becomes very important. Mm-hmm. Who is a match mm-hmm. for this community? Mm-hmm. Who aligns with what we're trying to do? Yeah. There are people who are incredibly talented and wonderful, and wonderful performers and mm-hmm. might not be a good match for this community at all. Right. And they might need an experience somewhere else. Maybe they're not interested in investing in the success of others. Mm-hmm. Right. But we need this feedback. And some of this, I think for many years, has been very much anecdotal. Mm. So just stories and examples. This student's doing very well, so look for more students like this. Right, right. You know, This student's not doing so well, so maybe you stay away from students right. like that. But we're getting much better about starting to connect data that we gather during the student experience and then tie it back into the applicant experience. We have colleagues here at Institutional Research who are starting to draw correlations between, for example how students score on their tests for admission and how they score in the classroom here Mm -hmm. and starting to draw ties Mm -hmm. there. And it allows us to understand what is the predictive value of that. Mm -hmm. And you can tie that also to other outcomes that we might consider measures of success. How are they engaged as alums? How have they contributed back to this place? Mm -hmm. And what are their successful outcomes in the career search? And so the more we can start to build truly machine learning in this sense, Mm -hmm. that brings loops back into our selection process, the sharper we can get in our balance of analytics and human yeah, intuition. Right. And we're making a lot of great steps right. in the, that
0: I, I think that that's a really big area for development. I don't know whether other schools are far ahead or are thinking about it the same way as, say, we, we might be. And whether, you know, this is just business school world, but there's also uh, you know massive undergraduate education, including Dartmouth and you know, hundreds and hundreds of other schools. Uh, but it seems like that's a really important thing. And whether a student does well on tests, speaking personally is not a particularly important criteria for me uh, because the, your ability to answer effectively in some quantitatively oriented test uh, is not going to predict very much in your, in your future. Uh, it means you're smart, but you're smart to get in. It means you have analytical skills. Well, yeah, you, you wouldn't be able to score as high as you did in the GMAT and other things like that. But it doesn't take long uh, when, you're, uh, when you're working. When, when you, if you want to move from being an analyst to a manager, to a leader, which is where really all the action is. Um, if you're going to be a startup entrepreneur, you you, you got to be a leader. You can't just you know, be a coder. Um, if you, uh, you want to be um, a CEO or running a business unit, you can't just be strong at finance and, and understand you know, cash flows and things like that. you got to understand people. And that's, that's the thing that is the biggest uh, diff- differentiator. And and as a result, I mean, it's a little bit tough to track that. Um, but I, I would, I would think that anything we can do to track those types of, um, I'm not going to call them soft scales, even though I just did, because <laughs> uh, they're they're anything but soft. They're actually very, very hard. Uh, I think would make a big difference. Mm-hmm. And it raises questions for how we assess students in the
1: classroom here. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the right criteria on which mm-hmm. we evaluate? And is it the ability to sit down and perform on a test or is it the evidence of engaging others? And of course the answer to that I'm sure varies by the content matter yeah. very much. So, right. Yeah. And, and the yeah. job market is also a huge influence on this. What are hiring managers rewarding, mm-hmm. right? What are the skills that they're looking for? Mm-hmm. And as I think about my work in admissions and, so, and selection, I'm always looking to the job market to see what are the cutting edge trends there, mm-hmm. right? What are the ways that they are using creative technology, gamification, mm-hmm ways to assess candidates that fall outside the conventional behavioral interviews that are subject to a lot of bias, Mm -hmm. But ways that they can capture a candidate's qualifications without that being able to be gained, there's a lot of potential there, and I'm I'm fascinated to see where it takes us. I think that's the future, not just of the job market, but of Mm -hmm. what we do. Right, that's what I was thinking.
0: Uh, It's important to know what a customer group, such as the recruiters that hire students, are thinking and what they want. But uh, anything we can do to reduce bias so, pretty well known in um, for orchestras, you know they've done the blind um, um, audition, right? Um, and as soon as, uh, and that just means behind a curtain, you know the the um, the, the the cello player, the, the violin player, whoever they are, they are doing their tryout. and Nobody sees them, and as soon as that started, and uh, all of a sudden there are more women, and there are more minorities in major orchestras. It's just been overwhelming. And, and um, those orchestras that have been slower to respond to that uh, have, have become, uh, did not become as integrated, as diverse. So clearly there's a, I mean, that's pretty strong evidence for some type of uh, bias, whether it's um, um, premeditated or, or not. And, and so when, when, when you and your team look at people coming in, I don't think you can divorce yourself from who they are what they look like the color of their skin whether they're male or female or or uh, however they might identify in terms of in terms of gender um in fact that might be part of the kind of the the, the team or the the school the body of students that you want you want to create but how do you how do you what do you do to guard yourself against some of that some of that bias kind of kind of creeping in to what uh, what you do
1: Sure, it's a fascinating um, kind of metaphor, and, and the, the symphony example, I've heard that too. The big difference is, of course, the symphony's goal is to produce the very best music, regardless of someone's background, regardless of someone's personal experience. Mm-hmm. They need the highest quality musical performance possible. Right. And we, um, as you alluded to, can't and shouldn't separate someone's full story of their personal background from what they're going to bring to the Tuck School. We want somebody to bring all of their experiences, all of their backgrounds, all of their perspectives, and so we need all of that. So in some ways, I would almost argue that we need to have some positive bias in identifying um, candidates who will bring that full story there and who can bring a perspective that will add Mm -hmm. to the community. Uh, But it's very hard to separate out the bias that would cause you from making a good decision, right? To understanding the kind of positive bias that might bring in Mm -hmm. a perspective on how this person's diverse experiences can add, right? Right. So we do each year, we we go through um, some very um, rigorous bias training, unconscious Mm -hmm. bias training Mm -hmm. before we start reading applications. Mm -hmm. A lot of it focuses on how different cultures, both geographically, professionally, and otherwise, might demonstrate the criteria that we're asking for,
2: hmm.
1: right? So you think about something like accomplished, to take one example. Yeah. You think about a, a very Western culture, the idea of accomplishments is very much in the first person, singular, right? I did this. That's what I, did. I did that, uh-huh. right? I was able to do that. Whereas you think of uh, some of the Eastern cultures, hmm. it is much more framed in the first person plural, right? We accomplished that. Mm-hmm. We did this. And so the natural bias as a Western reader would be to look at somebody saying, oh, we accomplished all this, we did that, we were able to do these great things, and say, well, clearly this person is co-opting the group's accomplishments because they didn't do it themselves. Right. That is a a negative interpretation. Exactly. Particularly negative, but I could see it. Right. So that temptation is there. And Mm. so to go through the training to understand that we need to be mindful and aware of how somebody from a different culture might talk about these things that helps us Mm -hmm. understand the context of what Mm -hmm. we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And you can apply the same to different industries, to different socioeconomic statuses and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so even just having that awareness and looking at the applications and saying, well, what might be informing how this person is presenting in that way? It doesn't eliminate it entirely, but it goes a long way towards helping us catch ourselves Mm. and to be able to say, well, okay, this landed on me in a certain way, but let me stop and ask myself, what might this really mean within the context of this person's background? Yeah,
0: right. Very interesting. So I have a whole bunch of other questions I'm thinking about, but uh, let's take a short break. And uh, when we come back, we'll keep keep grilling Luke on uh, how these MBA schools do what they do to bring in students and maybe not let others join. Let's take a break. We're back with Luke Pena. And uh, so far, Luke, we've been talking a lot about kind of the mechanics of uh, modern business school and how do you get in and how you and your team, uh, you run admissions at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College, how you go about uh, about this. And I want to return to some of that uh, uh, a little bit later in our in our chat. But um, um, I'm sure a lot of people are, are wondering, well, this guy has unbelievable influence on my life if I'm applying, he, he and his team, of course, if I'm applying to Tuck. Who is he? Uh, Where did he come from? So... Uh, can you uh, share a little bit about where, where you grew up and uh, what uh, uh, what your childhood was like? Sure. Yeah. I was born in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, neither one of my parents had a college degree. Let's so. pause there. How many people have we heard that for other podcasts? Really unbelievable. And they're all kind of interesting, fantastic people in their own sphere. So- Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So neither parents had a college degree. Um,
1: was a, It was a happy household. And, and yet when it was time for me to go to school, uh, we didn't have the money for private schools. And so I can recall a very early memory of mine, my mother taking me to public school and them saying I was too hyperactive to be in the school. Right, and that I, I wouldn't fit into the community. Maybe I needed to be medicated. Maybe I needed to be put on a special education track. And my mother said, no, this is crazy. He's just an active little kid. Hmm. Right, I don't think that the diagnosis here is to be on some different track or medication. So she elected to start teaching me at home, homeschooling. Right. And so even though she wasn't a trained teacher, such was the state of Arizona that she could be teaching me at home and I needed to take exams once a year to make sure I was keeping up with kids my age. Mm.
0: Exams, right. like state type exactly. or local exams? Exactly, a state exam. Yeah. So just for a second, so they said you were hyperactive. Mm-hmm. And so, like ADHD, that that type of thing that you keep hearing about now, or nobody even went that far. Well, I I was
1: just bouncing off the walls. I don't know exactly what diagnosis they gave, but but they just weren't comfortable with me in the
0: classroom. This is this is. I mean, there's something there about everything we've talked about. In fact, because people that are mavericks, that are outliers, that are quote unquote difficult to deal with, uh, that's not an easy profile. uh, But these are the people very often that change the world, because they think a little bit differently. Uh, and, and also, you know, public school, there's probably big classrooms and limited amount of money and teachers that are challenged. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to pile on there. But if they have a kid or two that uh, is bouncing off the walls, uh, that's, that's a tough job for them. Yeah, well, I was certainly um, not in the model that they wanted in the classroom. Yes, so, yes.
1: Um, so I learned at home, and when I was eight years old, my mother decided she wanted to go back and get her degree her college degree. So she enrolled at a school down the road in Phoenix, started studying biology, and I can remember she would leave the lesson plans at home for me Mm -hmm. while she was at class, and I would be doing the work at home. She would come back and then grade my work. You were by yourself during the day? I had a younger sister by that time. Were you in charge of the younger sister? Yeah, I don't know if I was in charge. (laughs) She was in charge of you. But But, but you were both being homeschooled? We were both being homeschooled. Since it was working for me, my sister was not... uh, Bouncing off the walls quite like I was, but it made sense, economies of scale, if you will,
0: right, to just give the lesson plans first. But you were eight years old. Right, that's right. And you were left alone Mm -hmm. in charge of a six year old, five year old. Yeah, well, my
1: mother had great faith in our Mm -hmm. ability to be attentive, and sometimes we did it and sometimes we didn't, and so there were consequences when we didn't. Yeah, okay. But I learned to. Teach myself throughout the day, and mm-hmm. then the work would be graded. And this went on for five years while my mother got her degree. I got
0: a pot for five years. You were really your own teacher
1: and student. She she guided me a great deal, and yet yeah. I had a lot of autonomy yeah. to be able to absorb the material myself.
0: Wow! And well, what happened to this uncontrollable kid? How would you sit still to do this? Yeah, so I think this was uh, day by day. Yeah. Right?
1: You know, there were some days where I was on top of it, and some that I wasn't, but there was a very clear uh, reward structure to where if I got the work done, then I was allowed to go out and have fun, and if mm-hmm.
0: I wasn't, I'd sat right in my chair until the work was done. Okay, so there were consequences. Sometimes you hear about kids growing up with uh, like a Montessori school system, which is a great system, which gives you a lot of freedom. And then they go into the regular school system and, you know, you've got to sit still and cross your hands and et cetera. But you are much further out there in terms of freedom and flexibility. Very unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you think that that's affected how you think about the world? I mean, how could it not in some way?
1: I well, think it gives a sense of, of discipline, right? Yeah. And understanding that sometimes there's just things that need to get done, work yeah. that needs to get done. And yeah. so you can put it off. And if you
0: put it off, it's not going to go away. It still has to get done. Yeah. So sit down and do it. So it, what, what this model required is a mom that was strict.
1: Well, yes, yes. Or a and, dad or whatever. And, and there were many days I, I cannot sit here and say that I was perfect about it. There were many days where I blew it off and then, you know, there were consequences when they came home and saw that I hadn't done the work. Right. So for example, you know, wouldn't get to go outside and see my friends. Yeah. Wouldn't get to, you know, play video games or whatever else I wanted to do.
0: This is also interesting because you knew you were going to get caught. Mm-hmm. There's no way around it. There's nobody to copy, uh, uh, I don't know that Google was uh, going to help you all that much, and you know, and whatever your lessons were at the age of eight or nine or ten would be would be a little bit different. Um, yeah, so that's so. I mean, that's just a kid, I suppose. Kids right. know that it's not all going to work, but you can't help yourself. You just do it. Well, I think
1: there was a lesson for me about accountability there too. Yeah. Right? Like if I didn't get the work, it's, nobody else was going to do it. Nobody right, else was going right. to take it away from me. Right. And it was still going to be sitting on my desk. Mm-hmm. And all the other rewards that I wanted as a kid were not going to be mm-hmm. given to me mm-hmm. until I did that. Yeah. So I, as yeah. I got older and a little more mature, I started to realize if I didn't do this, then the rewards that I wanted as a kid weren't coming to me. Yeah. So I was accountable, solely accountable for getting this work done. Right.
0: Wow. Very unusual, and you could, that's a powerful lesson. If you, if it works, I could imagine might not, and uh, for some kids who just can't focus that way. But you were you're able to do it. Yeah. Well,
1: it worked to a time. You know, I hit 12 years old, and yeah. 12 is a rebellious uh, age for uh, yes. many, and I was no exception. And I can remember being, I think, about October of that year, I just quit.
0: You quit school.
1: school. I quit and said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't want to do this. This Mm -hmm. is not um, something I want to sit at home and do all day. And so my mother, um, much to my mother's chagrin, I think I was also convincing my sister to also stop Uh doing her work. Uh And so at this time, my mother said, okay, she took my sister and put her into a public school.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But with me, she didn't put me into the public school. And so I actually spent many days tagging along with her in her college classes. This was their last year of undergrad, and I can mm-hmm. remember sitting there. Of course, I didn't participate. I wasn't allowed to engage or mm-hmm. do any of that, but I observed and uh, remember just being really struck by this experience because, mm-hmm. remember, I'd never really sat in a learning community. Oh, right? And so then here were these people, dozens and occasionally hundreds of people coming together, and it looked like they really liked it. They wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. They were engaged. They were interested in the topic. Mm-hmm. And they were interacting with each other. And this was a completely new phenomenon to me. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I spent the, and just about the entirety of that year doing a lot of that and getting my first exposure yeah. to what can happen when you get people together in a room who want to be there and learn right. from each other.
0: So what did you do while these lectures or classes were going on sitting next to your mom? Yeah, I, th- I think just watched. Just right? watched. Observed. It's like radical style of education. Very interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you didn't have your own curriculum yeah
1: i and I think I was there not to actually learn I was there to so that I wouldn't get into trouble of my own yes right it was a way for my but, mother to keep tabs on me and but, yet
0: uh-huh. it was fascinating to observe right mm-hmm. right right um but what, how, how did that work though because uh, is, uh, Aren't you required to go to school up to a certain age?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and I don't know the answer. You don't know how how it all I don't know the answer to that. Um, But the decision was made not to put me into the public school that year, like my sister, Mm. and to have me tag along and see what was happening there. Um, So this was uh, really formative, and it actually influenced decisions down the road. Uh, But my mother then graduated. She got her biology degree. Mm -hmm. She wanted to keep going. She wanted to go to med school. Hmm. And so she... um, took my sister and I and moved us from Arizona to Missouri. My parents were separating and divorcing right about that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the three of us, my mother and my sister and I, moved to Missouri. And there I enrolled in public school. Mm-hmm. Very, it was a small town, safe schools, good community. Yeah. And so that was my first... Wow. Proper exposure. You remember
0: the first time you walked into the class with sure. kids your own age? Yeah. yeah. Can you describe it? Do you have a visual of it, how, how it felt, or how it looked? The town in Missouri, it's a town called Kirksville, and there's
1: one elementary school, there's one junior uh-huh. high school, wow. and there's one high school. Yeah. Right? So I was I stepped in as a freshman in high school, and here was a group of people that had spent their just about their whole lives together, yep. right? Not a lot of people moving in and moving out of this town. Right, right. And so I can recall feeling like an outsider. Of course, right? Here I am, I don't know anybody, I don't have any friends, and I also don't really know how to be a student mm. in a school, so I was going to have to learn these things. Um, and so it was a, it, it was a rough transition. Um, and so I can remember, you know, you slowly get integrated, and I did reasonably well in school, uh, but I didn't want to be there, and I just wasn't happy with a lot of the circumstances. I wasn't happy that the family had come apart, wasn't happy that I was in this new place mm-hmm. with... People who were already friends,
0: and mm-hmm. I had to break into that group. So I can remember in my junior year, I decided to drop out. So you, you were you were there as a regular full time student, freshman, sophomore, mm-hmm. and, and junior year. That that was it. Yeah, junior year, I turned sixteen. Sixteen is when you can
1: uh, ha- drop out of school on your own without uh-huh. parental authorization. Okay. And so I, I had made the decision in my mind to drop out. I wrote the letter, mm-hmm. had it ready to go to the principal. Um, and one of my friends caught wind of it and talked me out of it. Really? But I, could, I, was, I, can, I was hours away from dropping out of high school. Wow. Um, and had a, a friend who is, you know, an angel, if you will. Yes. Um, talked me out of it, and so I stayed. God. But needless to say, college was not on my radar. I was not thinking about college. I was planning to get out of school. I was planning to work in the area, do something, mm. um, you know, maybe in one of the farms down the road, something like this. Um, and... You know, senior year rolls around, and you know I'm I'm still the relatively disgruntled student that almost dropped out, and yet here are these classmates of mine going to things like college visits, and hmm. college counselors were coming onto campus. I never went to one of them, but I saw my classmates doing that, mm-hmm. and I started thinking about that year yeah. where I'd sat in on college classes with my right, mother, right? Right? And I started thinking that there was something to that, huh. right? And I, I wasn't planning for that at all, and yet. The people there liked it, and I'm seeing my classmates start doing that. So I decided one night in the middle of my senior year, you know what, I'm going to apply to college. I'm just going to do it. Right? They're, They're...
0: doing it. It looks all right. I remember my mom going to school. Let me do it. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Uh, talk about an un... A, a unsophisticated plan with a la- complete lack I of preparation. I could see so many parents shuddering listening to this <laughs> uh, because they, they've probably mapped out their kids' college planning uh, for, for several years before they uh, before they get the senior yeah. year. And now as an
1: admissions professional myself, yes, I see the work that people put into the preparation
0: process. Uh, that was not me. That was not you. Um,
1: and so I can remember going online, and, you know, the Internet existed at that time. It's certainly not what it was today. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, getting onto the dial up and all that good stuff. Um, and finding some colleges and I was looking for colleges with a journalism major Mm -hmm. because I was a journalism student. I was editor of the yearbook. It was the one class I really liked. Mm -hmm. And so I found a couple colleges. I, um, found that the deadlines were like now it was January of my senior year. That's right. Right, So I had to apply right away. So I, um, applied, um, yeah, literally on the spot to those three colleges, knowing Mm -hmm. very little of them. Um, and, um, as the, as the fates are, the, the fate's shown on me and actually got admitted to all three of the schools hmm.
0: that I'd applied to.
1: Hmm. Um, were your
0: grades good enough, a reasonable I was a good I was a good student. when you paid I, attention, you did all right. right uh, was I was, an, I was an anomaly in
1: high school in the sense that I was um, always on the honor roll, always had great grades, and was always
0: getting in trouble for social behavior. What did teachers do with you or say to you or because you know the, everybody likes a smart kid? But then you had this whole other side going on. I think teachers told me I had a lot of potential that I was wasting. Yeah. Right? And so yeah, they
1: saw yeah. good performance in their classes, but yeah. they also saw behavior mm. that showed that I was not oriented and pointed in the right direction. Yeah. Right? So I can remember a lot of my teachers pulling me aside and saying, if you ever get your head on straight, mm. you can do something. Yeah. And it just kind of went on deaf ears at that time. Um, but, but got into three colleges, and the one that excited me the most was the University of Southern California. Out in Los Angeles. Which is a very good school. Uh, it was, and I'm not even sure I realized it at the time. You I know, just that was I just, my
0: first academic job. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Back in um, 1987. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was there from 87 to 93. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a fantastic school. And, you know, I
1: didn't know that because I hadn't done <laughs> my research. Why did you, know, you pick it in the first place? It had a journalism oh, school. Oh, yeah, very An- good journalism school. program. Yeah. Um, and it was in Los Angeles. And I was... Enamored with the idea of living in Los Angeles and having, um, you know, the warm weather and the beaches and all of that. Yeah, I went through that phase too. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So um, decided to go. They gave me a a good financial aid package, which was a big decision for me. Um, And off I went to USC Um, and spent the first year um, having lots of fun um, and doing just about everything except remembering that I needed to renew my financial aid forms. Um, and so, um, second year rolled around sophomore year and I was days away from going back to my, for my sophomore year, getting in the car and driving back from Missouri, realized I didn't have funding. Hmm. Only then did I realize that I wouldn't be able to pay the tuition. So, um, called up my advisor at USC and said, I can't come back. Please drop me from the program and stayed in Missouri. That sophomore year, hmm. and I can remember I filled the days that fall, um, filled the days working on a farm of a friend, we were bailing hay, bailing straw, weed, all these good things. Right. Um, and then spent the nights working at a drug rehab center. Hmm. And so working overnight and making sure that, you know, people were sleeping through the night, counting medications, things like that, wow. um, and slept in between the two. And I can just remember th- as the weeks wore on into that fall, having a lot of time to think and reflect Mm. and realized I had a really great opportunity. Mm -hmm. I had this opportunity to be in an academic setting with people who were learning, growing, studying. Mm -hmm. And I squandered this, right? I I had not paid attention to the steps that I needed to make sure that I can continue to do that. Mm -hmm. And here I was headed down a different path in life, not a, Mm -hmm. not a bad path, but, but not a path that would help me grow in the ways that I wanted Mm -hmm. to. And so I started realizing I have to get back. Right. I have to do what I can to get back and get my head on straight mm-hmm. and embrace these opportunities. So called up the advisor. The advisor um, had thankfully not dropped me, but just put me on a leave of absence. And He said, this is how we can get your finances back in order. I went through that. I came back the following semester, and my whole outlook on education was changed. Right. I'm like, this is something that is a gift. This is something that is a blessing this is a privilege that not everybody mm-hmm. gets i've been given this privilege and i almost handed it away right and so there i was with a completely renewed outlook on how i showed up in class how i engaged mm. and how i took care of the steps that i needed to yeah. to keep this
0: do you think you were uh, you were fortunate to uh, have that opportunity that second or third chance at that at that stage
1: yeah well i think about how close i was to falling off this path of education, yeah. right? both in high school when I almost dropped out and got talked out of it. right In college, when an advisor didn't listen to my request to drop me, but just put me on the leave. And, and these I think this is incredibly fortunate, yeah. right? incredibly fortunate that I had
0: people around me who were thinking of me and caring for me. So one of the things I've thought about when it comes to college admissions, and this is more undergraduate than um, graduate, but I think it still applies somewhat, is there's a, there's a tremendous number of uh, really talented uh, kids around the country, in every country, but let's just say in America, um, that they don't have the upbringing, the background, maybe the personality to n- follow the steps, know what the steps are. I think many of them never even heard of Harvard, let alone Dartmouth. They don't even know it exists. It's totally a foreign world. Um, and, and and they live in that in that bubble that they're in. And they never break out of it, even though they had unbelievable potential to, to do something really special. And uh, I, know, I know many universities, Dartmouth included, do, spending a lot of time trying to identify and reach those, those say, l- low socioeconomic or, or low awareness uh, communities that, have, that will have, like any other community, uh, there's always a distribution of kind of raw IQ, if you will, and there's always going to be people with the capability of doing that. Um, you're kind of in that category to some extent,
1: right? Yeah, and and I got incredibly fortunate and incredibly lucky to fall backwards into a great place like USC that was good for me, that helped me grow, that helped me develop. And you're exactly right. There are so many people who don't have access to information, who don't have access to good guidance about this process, Mm -hmm. that never have the same incredible luck and fortune that I did.
0: It's information, yes. It's guidance. And it's also aspirations. Um, you know, if people don't have, uh, if don't aspire to accomplish something better or different, whatever it is, and we're not necessarily talking, talking about going to university or a great university, whatever, whatever it happens to be, it's very hard to, to, to do that. I mean, it's, and part of that is personality and how you, grew, how you grew up, but part of it is also for someone to open up the, 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 the book or the door or the window. And t- take a look, and it's something that you, you, you never imagined. I don't know if it's the right analogy, but it just popped in my head. I remember when I was, um, uh, I guess, 13 in high school, and um, I had trouble seeing the blackboard. Hmm. <laughs> it's kind of weird. I, I was sitting in the back, and I don't know how I had the nerve because I wasn't this type of kid, but I raised my hand and I asked the teacher, this was in technical drawing or something like this, um, which I wasn't very good at. Uh, I asked him, can you write a little bit bigger. I can't believe I said that because that's like, really, who the hell is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and he, and this was a number of years ago, proceeded to throw the chalk at me, which I guess is not accepted anymore, but that's kind of rather minor. And he takes my arm and he moves me to the front of the, of the classroom. And then he says, you should go get glasses. And I said, really? I had no idea that I could not see perfectly. It didn't occur to me. And I, for whatever reason, my parents didn't notice it. And uh, so I went to get glasses, and I remember the day I got those glasses the first time, and I'm walking home from uh, the optometrist, and I could not believe how the world looked. I, I, I could still remember it, the brightness. Even my hearing was better, if that's possible. You hear the birds chirping, and, uh, and you see the color, and, the, and even something like a tree, the green of a tree. It's a million trees. They're all green. No, the first time you've seen it in that way, it was, uh, it was unbelievable. Um, so it's a little bit different but maybe not, uh, yeah. kind of what you're describing.
1: My mother said the same thing. She also wears glasses, and she didn't know until she was six or seven years old that the trees weren't just a big green blob, uh, right? You yeah. know, didn't know that there were individual yeah. leaves, and that was the first time she realized that. And, and it's a great point. There are so many people who uh, don't even know and aren't even aware of the opportunities that learning communities can provide, Right? And I think right. it has so much to do with what is the environment mm-hmm. that young people are placed in
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? and who are the people in those environment and are those people presenting opportunities for, for knowledge, for information, for, um, you know, just for, in this example, for um, the information about great opportunities to continue studying and growing and learning, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and for those students, mm. it's unrealistic to think they're going to stumble on those themselves. Sometimes that happens, but more often that doesn't. You need people, you need advocates, you need champions, mentors, whoever it may mm-hmm, be, mm-hmm. to say, hey, have you thought about, you know, this pathway yeah. to college, or have you thought right. about this
0: internship, or have you thought about this growth opportunity? Yeah, and it's a tremendous gift, really, when somebody does that for, for someone else. And maybe, you know, even that high school friend in his own way or her own way saw, said, D- don't, don't do it. Don't quit. Are you crazy? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, the, uh, and it is a gift that you're giving. You never forget that person. You described uh, him or her as, a, as an angel just what you were saying it before. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the gift that I've been given most of all is a mother who didn't settle for the lot that she had in life but mm-hmm. went out and did something about it mm-hmm. and set an example for me. Right. right. About the power of education to transform her life into something that she wanted. She'd always dreamed of being a doctor. and she she, said, So she
0: went to medical school. Mm -hmm. She graduated. She did. Wow. Mm -hmm.
1: And she became a doctor. She became a doctor at a later age than most in life, but she accomplished her dream. Right. Right. And I had the gift of people around me along the way who wouldn't let me fail, Mm -hmm. right, and who wouldn't let me, in spite of myself, fall off the path towards growth and development and saw the potential in me and said, well, let me make sure you don't drop out of school. Let me make sure you get back into school and you weren't unenrolled.
0: You know, what you said, uh, uh, you know, when you think about... The differences between Eastern Western culture, and you, you look at say accomplishment, and, and and you know people say people say I accomplished this, and then Eastern cultures are more likely to say we. Uh, maybe we should have more appreciation in Western cultures, in individualistic uh, societies such as America. Uh, that no matter how much I is there, there's a big we in here, mm-hmm. uh, because along the way there are a lot of different, uh, a lot of different things that happen, mm-hmm. um, and and some good luck along the way as well.
1: That's why we want nice people that talk. Right? That's because why a nice nice segue back could, to that. <laughs> because there is a cap on, I believe, a cap on what we can accomplish by ourselves, mm. a cap that we just completely rise above if we are empowering those around us um, to be part of that vision, be part of that goal. So it, it does tie back to how we yeah. think about leadership and how mm-hmm. that's a team effort rather than an individual effort. Mm-hmm. Yes, you often need a, you know, a, a leader, a super boss, whatever it may be, out at the front creating the vision, but people have to buy into that.
0: Yeah, right. We're talking to Luke Pena. Let's take a short break and come right back. We've been getting a lot of informal feedback from friends and family as they've listened to the podcast, but uh, we'd love to hear what you think as well and uh, suggestions, ideas, ideas for guests, um, maybe even questions you kind of wish I ask. because maybe I'll call them up and see if I could ask your question uh, as a follow-up to one of our guests. Who knows? Um, take a look at the, at the website, thesidcast.com and Sidcast, The Sidcast is S-Y-D, Sidcast.com. and uh, if you click contact at the top, it'll take you to a little uh, spot where you can just uh, write in your message, and we'll uh, look at it and get back to you, and uh, uh, while you're on the website, you can take a look at some of the other episodes you might not have uh, listened to, and um, you can even click around and find out more about me and some of the work that I've been doing. Welcome back to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelsey, and we've been talking to Luke Pena, who's the Admissions Director at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. And um, before the break, we were talking about uh, your childhood and lessons learned from your mom and kind of what got you uh, uh, through uh, to USC. And uh, so, you, so you went from um, you went from USC to Dartmouth, and along the way there were a few stops. So how did that happen maybe uh, uh, what's our speed reading way to get uh, get through that? What are some of the highlights during that time period? Yeah, I'll give you the
1: quick recap. So at USC, I interned in our admissions office at the uh, media school, the communication huh. and journalism okay. school, and graduated, thought I was going into a career in media, and actually started with an entertainment startup magazine. And... I was not good at it. Um, I didn't enjoy it very much Mm -hmm. and had a lot of self-doubt about my ability to be a professional. This was my first job, and I'm failing at my first job. And does this mean I can survive in the professional world? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I quit with no backup plan and was back on campus talking with the dean of admissions. And she heard that I had left my job, said she had an opening on the team there and that I should apply. And so I applied, Mm -hmm. and I wish I could tell you and the listeners that this was part of my strategic master plan for my life. Yes. I needed to pay rent, right? Right. I needed a job. So you took a job. It sounded interesting Mm -hmm. enough. Yeah, a familiar job with familiar people that I knew and trusted. um, Took the job, fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. And it was there that all of the things that we've talked about previously came into focus, and I realized how education had been a saving grace for me at every point of the way, and that... And yet I had been very fortunate and quite lucky mm. with the lack of preparation, guidance, and thought to find myself in the great positions that I'd been in. And here I had this opportunity with the admissions team to help others avoid the mistakes that I'd made right. and help them mm. identify a good match, a good fit. Yeah, yeah. And if I could d- dedicate my life to that, well, what a great life
0: it would be. You know, whenever you find your purpose, the purpose of, of your life, if you will, and where you, where, you know, how you contribute what it is you can do to make a difference. It's such a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Many people don't get there or take a long time, but you got there pretty early. Despite all the bumps in the road, you kind of saw that and said, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. This is, this is who I am.
1: And, and the bumps, bumpy as they may have been, is what gave me that that level of confidence and and to help other people minimize those bumps so that they didn't have to navigate the same bumps. So I spent four years there, uh, became increasingly um, enamored with the work and yet also wanted to gain skills like financial planning, strategic thinking, be a better manager, a better leader. And so I, I wanted to not step away from education, but I wanted to get the kind of training that business school provides. Yeah. And so I started looking for programs that would merge the two. There's one at Stanford that combines the MBA and the master's in education. And that was very deliberate because I worried that if I got just the MBA without the education, I might get pulled away from my calling, right? And I might end up in uh, some other industry that would be, um, you know, that is wonderful and fantastic, but not Mm. right for me. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I did that dual program, went there, um, graduated from there, and then um, took a job in their admissions office at the business school there and, and the Stanford business school. That's right. Okay. And, and that was unexpected to, for me because I actually thought when I went to business school, I was going to stay in higher education, but shift into something like operations or endowment investing, um, or the finance and accounting mm-hmm. of the school. And I tried all these things out and none of them gave me the same fire, mm-hmm. right. And the same drive mm-hmm. that admissions recruitment and building a class did. Um, so I agreed to take that job, uh, spent five years there, um, and after f- five years at Stanford, I started thinking um, a lot in light of everything going on in the world, right? Lots of examples of, in politics and business of leadership that um, was authoritative, but not what I would call wise, right? And I started thinking a lot about what am I doing um, to better our world, hmm. right? What effect am I having? Yes, I'm bringing in lots of great candidates each and every year, um, and to what end, right and yeah. yes we're helping people become leaders but i want there to be something attached to that um, some stand that the school takes to say well we want leaders that are actually doing good in the world and i started you know i'd seen tuck from afar mm-hmm. um, for many mm-hmm. years but i started paying closer attention yep. as in the mission we really started emphasizing wise leadership and the more i thought about it the more i said that's what I want to be a part of, hmm. I want to know that I'm helping build a community that is not just going to be impactful, but impactful for good, right? And impactful for the betterment of this world and, and bettering business. And so, as I became more attuned to the mission, I became increasingly excited about Tuck and, and such as it was, um, the opportunity to come and, and lead this team presented itself. Yep. Um, and you know, one conversation led to another, and here I am. Wow.
0: So, um, so you were in, in the missions at Stanford. Uh, for four years? Five years there. Five years. What's the biggest difference between a Stanford MBA student and a Tuck MBA student? Mm. The emphasis
1: here on engaging deeply with teams and with your classmates um, is very, very strong. Yeah. Right. And, and make no mistakes. You know, Stanford has a great spirit of collaboration. Stanford also has a lot of uh, people who go there um, as, as somewhat individual um, students. Right. Maybe you think of the entrepreneurial types, yes. um, the folks who go there. And, th- and I had many classmates who operated very independently throughout their time there. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, and yet I see the difference coming here and how deeply the student teams form, um, whether it's study groups, whether it's you know, the t- go teams, the first year projects team, and how much the setting here in this place outside of a big city and the size of the class really deepens yes. that sense of teamwork. Yeah. And so the, the level to which students know each other and depend on each other and trust each other,
0: I find it really palpable here. And I haven't seen that anywhere else i that. Right. Interesting. So you have a lot of years in recruiting, um, MBA applicants, MBA, MBA students. So let me ask you a few questions about some of those experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, after you, um, um, after you've admitted a student, do they ever talk to you and give you their own feedback on what they think about you or about the process? Mm, yeah. I, I think of a student
1: that I worked with, a, a Mexican student. He had um, written a long list of things that he wanted to do at school. And, and I can remember um, in his second year, we went to coffee and he sat down and, and he. Um, Actually, it was very emotional and um, talking about it. And I said, what's going on? Is everything okay? Mm. What's going on? And he just said, I re- just wanted to sit here and I wanted to thank you because everything that I wrote about in my application that I wanted to do, I've been able to do here. Mm. Right? And he went down the list of things. I wanted to accomplish this. I wanted to be more comfortable with this. I wanted to grow my knowledge in this. And he just went down the list and, and said, all of this was possible uh, because you, know, you and the team here had faith in me and what I would be able to do. Um, and I just never forgot that uh, that feedback, right, that, yeah. that, that sense of appreciation. Mm-hmm. And it's a way to re- renew my faith. It renews my commitment to the fact that this is really important work, yeah. right? And that people, if we give people opportunity, right, if we give the right people the right opportunities at the right schools, they can accomplish all of their dreams. They can accomplish everything they came there to do. And so I always... You know whether if it's if it's a particularly challenging day, I often find myself reflecting on that conversation because that's why this work is important—to give him the opportunity to do
0: all of those things that he wanted to be able to do. Yeah, and and it also points out again uh, the power of expressing gratitude to someone or some people who who helped you along the way or did because that just. I mean, that's a gift to you as you're sharing that story today, and it's an impactful story. I could see that. Um, but for that person, that student in particular, he was from Mexico? That's was, right. Mm-hmm. So there are students from all kinds of different different countries. How do you learn about uh, some of these countries and how different they really are?
1: <laughs> this is a funny one. I can remember my first year in business school admissions. I went to... Um, lots of the world. And I got a chance to travel and, and present in different places. And so um, two of the countries I went to were um, Brazil and Japan over the course of that year. Mm. And so I, I came back um, from my travels and the alumni were very eager. They wrote the Dean of Admissions and um, the Brazilian alums wrote the Dean of Admissions and says, it was great to meet Luke. He's a great addition to the team. He's wonderful. Um, I think you need to tell him um, that he needs to calm down <laughs> when, he's, when he's you know presenting. Uh, that, excuse me, I had that backwards. The Brazilian alum said that I needed to be um, more animated, right?
0: So, oh, the Brazilian said, and the Japanese said,
1: "Calm down." Here we this, Yes, right. So the, Brazi- the Brazilian alums wrote, and they said, uh, "You know, we needed to see more energy, right? You know, great presentation, great guy. We needed to see more energy." And then, you know, a week later, the Japanese alums wrote, mm-hmm. and they said, "Oh, you know, great to meet Luke. Wonderful addition to the team. Uh, he was way too energetic." Right, Way too animated. It's a classic, isn't it? He just needs to calm down. And, of course, I had gone to all of these countries and delivered the exact same presentation Mm. in the exact same way Mm. with the exact same delivery. And it was a real eye-opener to realize that the way to connect with different groups and different cultures has to be modified and has to be adjusted if I want to have maximum impact.
0: Right, and it's a lesson of the power of of people's upbringing. These are countries, but every one of our upbringings are different. We carry that with us, kind Mm -hmm. of as you were saying earlier about your own upbringing. Very interesting. Uh, So you travel a lot of countries, I guess, all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't get tired of that?
1: Never get tired of that. I I think a big reason is because I didn't travel when I was young. Mm -hmm. When you think about our family circumstances, and they weren't such that I had the privilege and the opportunity to go see the world from a young age, so I can remember being 24 years old and getting my very first passport. And the first trip I took internationally was uh, to London.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? And so I, I remember landing in the plane. The plane was coming down, descending and looking out. And I was the most scared I think I'd ever been in my entire life. Right? Just terrified. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. I don't mm-hmm. know how I'm going to navigate this. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, they speak English right in london. That's handy. Right. More <laughs> yeah. or less, yeah. yeah. What was I so worried about? Mm. Right? But it was just such a literally foreign concept mm. to me to go somewhere in a different country right. to be stepping off. But yeah. I also yeah. on the heels of that was just overwhelmed by this incredible sense of privilege, right? And mm. and I just thought about all of the people that I'd known growing up that had never traveled outside of the country, right. that had never seen right. a country or a culture other than their own. And to this day, I'll tell you, I, I do a lot of travel for the Tuck School and, and some personally as well. And I, every time I land in a different country, I think back to that, that mm-hmm. plane ride. And I think back to that feeling that I had and the sense of wonderment right, right that I had. And so I have colleagues at other schools who say they um, are not keen to travel very much. I can't imagine that would ever be me because of this incredible you an know, awesome opportunity well, to learn more about the world.
0: Easy, it's easy. It's to forget uh, because this is a real grind. Anyone travels a lot. It's a, it, you know it's tough, and planes are delayed, and it's a headache, and the food is bad, and there's jet lag, etc. But to try to um, uh, recollect, to have in your mind's eye, as you do, um, really the purpose of it and what, what's behind it, and uh, you know, making me think. I bet a lot of listeners are also thinking about some of the travel that they've done, um, and what gets evoked in your head. I I remember first time flying into, into LA and, you know, when you fly into LA, the city starts like an hour before you get to the airport almost. The lights are endless uh, and it's just, you know, you're touching down in some like crazy met- metropolis. I remember London as well. I remember um, um, Tel Aviv, uh, some of my first uh, flights ever. I didn't go on an airplane until I was 17 years old. Um, and yeah, you remember, you remember those things. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's not a bad thing to, to remember. Um, Because otherwise, a lot of drudgery, and who needs that? Mm -hmm. Uh, So what about um, um, embarrassment? What was your most embarrassing moment (laughs) when you were recruiting a candidate? This this also has to do with Mexico. Um,
1: I can... Remember this was actually not I was on a trip recruiting candidates, but I was actually with alumni for dinner. We sometimes go out to dinner afterwards and yep. talk about the school, yep. and so I can remember sitting there with alumni and i you know, I needed to use the restroom so um, so I excused myself and you know went into the restroom and um, was standing there at the sink, washing my hands right and there in the mirror behind me, yeah you know, walks a woman behind me. Oh. And, you know, she looks at me and, and she says something, I, I know enough Spanish to know that she said something very unpleasant, right? And, you know, and walked by, I'm um, out the door. And I said, what is this? What's going on? What is this about? What did I do? Um, and so, you know, I walk out the door and I look up and I'm like, Em, I'm in the right place, Men. right? You know? Yeah. And, and then, you know, slowly the realization yes. comes over to me. Em means mujer in the Mexican restrooms. Mujer is the word for woman, right? So here I am. <laughs> little cultural thinking, learning thinking going on. My, thinking in my English mindset, yeah. right, that you just walk into M for men. And I, instead, I'd walk into the restroom for mujeres, yeah. um, for women. And, so, you know, of course, I look over to the other, and there's H for hombres, right? And I'm like, okay, yeah. I belong in H, not M. Yeah. <laughs> so a reminder that even while I love seeing the world and consider it a great privilege, I've got to stay aware of where I am right, and where I'm going. Right, That's great. That's great. Um, any scary moments along the way? Yeah, I can remember being um, in in a Middle Eastern country uh, right about the time of the Arab Spring, mm. right? And so this was a country that had um, a curfew in effect. And in fact, we'd actually changed our information session time um, to accommodate the curfew. It had initially been in the evening, but you needed to be in at 7 p.m. And so, you know, had the information session during the day. We got with the driver to go back to the hotel and traffic was very bad, And so I'm sitting there looking at my watch because we're going to miss the curfew, right? And I didn't know what was going to happen. So, you know, we arrive, you know, outside the hotel um, after curfew and I'm walking in. There's, you know, the military for that country. um, And, well, they start screaming at me and yelling at me in Arabic. And, you know, I don't know any Arabic, so I didn't know how to respond. And then the guns come up, right? So, you know, we've got, you know, a dozen or so, Mm. you know, armed military men with the guns up and, you know, thankfully, I think they realized that I was um, a tourist right, in their country, and mm-hmm. we got a chance to go in and talk to the hotel, and I think they lectured the hotel staff about why I was out after curfew. But you never expect, as an admissions officer, to um, have a dozen guns pointed at you while you're out on the road, but you have to be prepared for anything. <laughs> that, you never know what's going to happen. So that, that was that was a scary that, moment. That is, sc- that is scary. And so uh, I, I learned that... Um, you, know, you have to um, be very cautious about when you're traveling to places right in the middle of lots of conflict because you never yeah. know what might happen. Right. Huh.
0: That's uh, kind of an unusual or interesting place to be recruiting. Any others come to mind that uh, you, uh, where you recruited people? In terms of countries? That yeah, are, or interesting uh, places or unusual mm-hmm. places. or Yeah. Uh,
1: I think a lot about um, a lot of the work that we're starting to do in Africa, right? Mm. And it's just a fascinatingly vibrant and rich, um, continent with lots of different cultures therein. Uh, and this is an untapped market for much of business school, right? There are a lot of business schools that are just now starting to make inroads into Africa. Mm. Um, and yet, um, the, the level of understanding about business school is still something that we're building a lot of and and developing there. Um, but there's a lot of incredible talent that, um, It kind of comes – it makes me think of our earlier conversation about just highlighting opportunity, Mm. right? People that are doing incredible, amazing things, lots of entrepreneurial spirit there, uh, lots of people thinking about communication and infrastructure and telecommunication, um, and many people who would really benefit from scaling their impact – through the kind of training and leadership experience that we offer here, but just have no idea yeah. right, about yeah. some of the opportunities here. And so I've had the opportunity to go a couple times, but I want us to go much more regularly mm-hmm. to be able to be able to share the story of talk about these candidates because that's a really
0: fascinating, exciting place to be. What do they ask you when you go there? Because it is it is a more unusual thing to go to business school, mm-hmm. right? Um, they ask the standard questions or are they... They have uh, other types of questions they're asking. They ask
1: a lot of, why do I need this? Yeah, right? well, that's and, a good and question. That's, and, and it's a good reminder as a recruiter that we need to have a good explanation for the value proposition of the MBA. Mm-hmm. And yet when I present in the States or when I present in China or other highly developed markets that have a history of sending people to MBAs, we skip right past that question. Right? We go straight to why tuck, yes. because the idea of an MBA is assumed. Mm-hmm. And yet you go into a
0: place like Africa and they say, why would I bother Right, coming all the way? Do you ever come across the critique about MBA education in general? Um, you know, we, we train people to make a lot of money, uh, to uh, not worry about people. Uh, they grow these companies. They fire people. Um, they don't care about the environment. They don't care about the culture. They don't only care about themselves. Uh, it's all about self-interest. Uh, and then there's always plenty of stories of, you know, people that were very – Uh, like dramatic failures of CEOs and they went to a business school. So periodically, these stories kind of come up uh, and they they must be coming up to you as well. I'm sure there's some kind of people putting you on the hot seat sometimes around that.
1: Yeah, I hear those stories. I think that, um, frankly, they... Uh, sometimes reflect a limited understanding of what business schools in this day and age actually strive to do. Mm -hmm. And I do acknowledge that as you look at the history of business school, this was once a degree just to confer a credential and build skills. And yet, Mm -hmm. thankfully, this is an experience that has evolved to focusing on how are you a genuine authentic leader, Mm -hmm. right? And I do think that every business school, at least every great business school, including Tuck, is thinking very deeply about how peop- how to help people understand their own self, right. and how to deliver um, that genuine leadership experience to others who they might lead. So, uh, you know, my kind of my, my quick response to that is: we'll come back to the criteria that we look at at talk. Right? We're not striving to make people who are hard-elbowed and mean and competitive and and you know, dictatorial. We want people who are nice and who are aware, and yes, who have the smarts and accomplishment to be able to actually deliver. Mm-hmm on the big visions that they have, but to do so in a way that cares about others. And that awareness piece is big. And you know, this last year, there was lots of attention paid to nice. Fewer people picked up on aware. I think aware is actually really, really important, mm. right? Awareness of who you are, of what you want to accomplish, of how this particular business school fits into that. But a sense of self-awareness means you have the opportunity to improve and self-correct as you go right right and so the kind of manager that you just described that some of the external world conflates mm-hmm. with the the MBA graduate yes it's that's, a stereotype. Not, that's, that's, that's not right. an aware person right right that's a person who doesn't care mm-hmm. um, to think about how they're showing up with those who they lead and those who they influence that's not the kind of leader that we're striving to build right um, and so I hear that right and I say and and to the people who say that to me I try to politely say, well, look at what we are anchoring our selection process on and tell me if that maps the stereotype that you have. I'm pretty sure
0: that it doesn't. This is what we're trying to build here. Yeah, so actually it's a pretty, pretty careful answer in response to that mm-hmm. based on a lot of work that's gotten that, gotten you there. Sure. Yeah. Um, so you've dealt with and met a lot of young people and, and helped them uh, start their career and turned down a lot of people. Actually, probably had some pretty crazy applications along the way too, um, then you want to share no names of some of the worst uh, applications uh, that that you happen to see. Mm. There's there's two that
1: come to mind. There was one I, I I cannot in my mind figure out what the intention was behind it, but mm-hmm. the whole application was I hate your school. Right? I, think I, your, hate your I, school. I think your I think your school is terrible. Oh, you know I you just have the worst school in you know the history of the world, and I mean it was really kind of you know over the top, mm-hmm. and, and it was and and yet you should admit me. Right, and so I just don't, I can't. I know fath- you should admit me. Why? Because there wasn't I- a why attached, so I can't fathom or comprehend what the intention behind mm. it was um, but you don't forget an application like that no. where somebody just says you're awful and you're terrible and your school is
0: the worst and you should admit me that's so. amazing and so that's and that was like a real application with you know gmat scores sent oh, yeah. in and all and, the materials and, fully they, complete. and they paid their fees and everything else essays and the whole thing mm-hmm. yep. oh, yeah oh my god but the other one that i think is even more
1: resonant um, we had a candidate who applied, who um, had some ethical concerns in the application, uh, significant enough that it cost him his job. Mm. um, And he was very forthcoming about it in the application. And and at one point he even wrote um, a very powerful, very persuasive essay saying, I I had ethical lapses in my judgment, but I have learned the importance of um, full honesty, full integrity. Mm. And so I swear to you, I'm only applying to your school and, um, and it's just, you know, and I want you to know that I've learned my lesson and I'm honest and I have integrity about this now. Very compelling. And so, you know, I, I was feeling very positively inclined and then I opened the very last document in the application and the last document was an essay for another school that said <laughs> the exact same thing.
0: Yeah, the I'm same ver- thing.
1: I'm very honest. I'm, I, you know, I've, I've learned my lesson. Right. I now have honesty and integrity. But it and was I'm so only, careless. And, that I put the and, wrong and, school, and I'm only applying to your school, mm. but written, you know, to the other school. Beautiful, right? And so, you know, the, to, you know, to air is human, right? And I think a lot in this application process about how do we read with. Um, empathy, mm-hmm. right? How do we read with appreciation for the fact that there's not, a, I, I believe there's not a perfect person in this world, right? And we've all made mistakes. I worry that sometimes the application makes people believe and creates the anxiety that they have to show all their strengths and all their mm-hmm. um, um, perfections and minimize mm-hmm. all of the things that make them yeah, human. Right.
0: Um,
1: and yet, um, you know, to, the integrity is important in this process too,
0: Yeah. right? And so
1: to compose an application and say, even though I've had these ethical lapses, I'm honestly telling you I'm only applying to your school and then upload the evidence that that's clearly a lie. You think a lot about, okay, there is a standard that we need to meet in this process, and that standard has to include basic integrity,
0: honesty. and The the, the irony is that that, um, the the idea that you're only applying to one school is neither here nor there. That doesn't uh, demonstrate anything other than a personal choice. Right, so um, wow, careless, kind of dumb to, to choose that, uh, uh, and then and then a lack of integrity. What did you write back to this person? I mean, well, th- that person was not admitted to for the school, sure. So mm-hmm. do you, you you just do a standard letter, or do you provide a little bit of? Uh, I guess there's a legal side here. You gotta yeah, watch what there, you say. Yeah,
1: there is there is nothing beyond the the standard, standard the standard response. But this again comes back to aware, right? And so we really need candidates who are aware of both their strengths, but also where they have to grow, but that are aware of basic integrity in the process.
0: When somebody gets turned down um, and you send them that kind of standard letter, they sometimes will call back uh, and they'll want to know what can I do better, right? Mm -hmm. Does that happen a lot?
1: Well, some schools will do that and some schools don't. Tuck is a school that does offer feedback. And so we have formal channels for students to get feedback on their applications because we do believe that... Applica- ap- we're striving to admit not the best applications, but the best applicants, right? And sometimes applicants produce an application that doesn't highlight all of their best qualities. Yeah. Maybe perhaps mm-hmm. we can guide them right. and help coach them on how they can produce so a better sometimes application. sometimes reapply a year or two later? Sure. And sometimes they'll be accepted? Yeah. And in fact, the admission rate for reapplicants is a shade higher than it is for first-time applicants. And I think that reflects, hmm. one, an appreciation on our end for the persistence hmm. and the desire to be here. And hmm. we do care about those things. But it also reflects the confident humility that you referenced earlier. For somebody to be able to receive bad news right. and say, I'm humble enough to take this hmm. and to appreciate I can grow and get better. Yeah. And yet I'm confident enough to try this again, right. to come at it one
0: more Very time. Very interesting. Um, so let's do, some, uh, let's do some magic talk for a minute here. Mm-hmm. Imagine you go back to when you were 21 years old uh, and, you were, and you were able to provide some piece of advice to yourself at the age of 21. What, what would that be? Surround yourself with the right people. Right. I
1: think at my 21-year-old self uh, was um, eager to surround myself with friends and a network of people that um, were enjoyable and fun. Right. And maybe that's the, the disposition at that age. Yeah. Um, and yet, as I just think back on my life, the places where I have been my best self and done my best work is when I have had people around me who are invested in me in the right ways, right? That are, again, balancing the support and challenge, who are picking me up when I need that support, but also really calling me out and holding me accountable right. I'm not. And the times when I've been my worst self are when I've surrounded myself with people who have allowed all of my shortcomings um, to go unchecked. Mm-hmm. Right, And for me to just, you know, to act in ways that are not um, striving to be better, striving to improve. And so I I underestimated very significantly at an earlier age how much influence the people that are close to me around me have. Mm -hmm. And so I would have made much more deliberate, strategic, smart choices about those people who I considered my core network.
0: Yeah. It also gets back to our earlier discussion about, you know, somebody who's nice and what does that mean? And someone who's nice is not going to let you just kind of be your worst self. Mm-hmm. They're going to, they're going to say something. Yeah. Yeah. That,
1: that's, and that's, I used to think that, you know, the people who really cared about me were the people who validated me. Mm. That's not the truth at all, mm. right? I've seen now that exactly as you said, that mm. the mm. people who care about me have no fear about saying you're doing the wrong thing. Right? Yeah. You need to get back on the right track. And I know this isn't easy to hear. I know this is probably difficult to hear. but I'm doing it because I care, I need more people like that in my life. I needed more then. I still need
0: more now. But I've learned how valuable and right. how powerful it is. In, uh, in uh, my research on super bosses, one of the things I say is um, just because you have a nice boss doesn't mean you have a good boss. And by nice, I mean not maybe the definition you've talked about, but just everything's good, You know, no problem, validating, the validating boss, as opposed to the boss that will challenge you, will push back, and will tell you it's not working out right. You need to fix it. Now, not everybody wants that um, until they kind of realize what they miss, I think, along the way in terms of growth potential. That's exactly Mm -hmm. what your advice is really, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I think you've said in the past you've had a super boss leader or boss along the way. Super boss leader meaning someone who you work for that was highly influential uh, in your own development, someone who pushed you and helped you get better. Mm Can you share one of those examples?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll try to hit three, actually, really quickly, because there are three who are just really special to me. Uh, My first supervisor at USC, the dean of admissions, she taught me how to be a professional, right? And so she, every day, no matter uh, whether things were good or things were struggle, she brought um, a a work ethic, a demeanor, a presence, a grace um, that um, helped me as a 21, 22-year-old at the time really understand um, how to show up and bring my A game every day. Yeah. Um, I had a second that the dean of admissions at Stanford Business School, uh, he taught me the value of the little things, right? Don't don't cut corners. Don't Mm. let the little things slide. Like the little things matter, particularly in a relationship-driven business, which admissions is. Mm. And so the work and effort that he put in to cultivating relationships and then to doing the little things, right, whether it's even as simple as, you know, Sending, it, sending the text or sending a card or just checking in with people who are part of the broader network, mm-hmm. like those details matter.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the little things go a long way in good relationships, and so I never forgot that. Sometimes the little things that help you build those and reinforce those relationships. And sometimes people look at a relationship as something to be used uh, and in fact, the, the stronger the relationship, the more you just keep investing and reinvesting mm-hmm. into
1: it. Mm-hmm. So that was very powerful. Yep. And, then I, and then I have great admiration and respect for our dean here at the Tuck School. And he's taught me many things, but I think the greatest among them is uh, the importance of consistent communication. Mm-hmm. Right? When you have a message that you need to send, you need to say it over and over and over again. You mm-hmm. need to say it um, proudly, loudly, with conviction, um, and understand that, you know, as much as you might think you're communicating sufficiently and effectively, that's rarely actually the case for your audience. Yeah. And you have to keep coming back to it if you want it to stick and if mm-hmm. you want
0: it to really mm-hmm. take hold. Um, and that's a big part of creating vision. Yeah. I also have noticed when it comes to communication, I say this a lot to people around me. Uh, the person you're talking to is your customer and you need to communicate in a way that he or she gets it. Otherwise it's, it's on you. It's not on them. Uh, and that might require you to say it differently or convey it differently or interact differently, um, and there's also a lesson in that about parenting uh, uh, to continue taking an aside here. You know, does your kid get it or does your kid not get it? Is your kid doing what you want the kid to do? You can't always be sure that's going to happen. You've already shared some of you kind of going your own way as well as a kid, but um, if, you're, if, you're, if you keep saying the same thing and it's not working, you've got to change it. You've got to do it a little bit differently. So it's... Almost the opposite of the consistency. Consistency is important. Uh, Consistent communication is important. I agree with that. But if it's not getting through, you've got to do something different.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I'll even riff on that a little bit. Sure. In in addition to that, and I I think early in my career, one of the big follies and mistakes I made was thinking uh, of the prospective student as the only customer in that analogy, right? Mm -hmm. So I just, I've got to keep, I've got to be consistent and yet modifying yet consistent. Consistent theme, Mm -hmm. modified delivery, Mm -hmm. right? For the prospective student. But I've learned as I've risen in different leadership positions, I've got to think of the team, right? As a core constituent as well. And be communicating effectively to the team because that's even more important than communicating with the prospective students. Because if I get the team Aligned with the vision and communicating those messages, then it magnifies. Right. That's
0: that simplifies. Uh, that's the that's the leverage point that you can do, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you're obviously so passionate about your career and, what, and the and the path you you chose, and you talk about how you got this sense of purpose and meaning from it. So this next question to sound crazy, but if you did a, if you can have a mulligan and do something completely <laughs> different, uh, could you imagine what it might be?
1: Yeah, I I think it would have to be something in higher education, mm-hmm. right? I'm just so convinced that this is an opportunity for people to catalyze their goals and their dreams, right? Mm -hmm. I just think that so much of the learning and growth that we do as human beings is based on being surrounded by others who have different perspectives to add Mm -hmm. and who are willing to share those perspectives. And so I, I cannot see in our society, any forum, any setting that brings together people with different perspectives, different backgrounds, different experiences, brings them all together and then gives them a forum where they want to share and they want to learn from each other. I just haven't seen any other setting that recreates this the way that the higher education community does. And so this is why acknowledging all of the fascinating and wonderful opportunities that technology and online learning can offer us, Mm -hmm. I don't see anything that will fully replace the value of coming together in person with people who can really just push each other and learn and grow in that way. So, it, it, if you took admissions away from me and recruitment <laughs> away from me, I would find some way somewhere some whether, way to keep contributing and playing in this in this in this world. And and even if you took the college and university model away, how mm-hmm. do I build community? Yeah. How do I bring people together who are outside of one another's comfort area but can provide learning and perspective to where people can have their minds expanded and have the opportunity set of what's possible grow? some community where we learn from each
0: other in that way. That's yeah. what I would do. Right. Great. Great. We're talking to Luke Pena. Oh, one last question for you, Luke. I'd like to ask people this um, about your, um, your partner, husband, wife, spouse, whatever. Uh, uh, first of all, is there such a person? Sure. Yeah. I've got a partner. She lives in
1: Houston, Texas right now. How did you meet? We met on New Year's Day, 2012. So um, a few years back, mm. and the, the funniest part of it, neither one of us lived in L.A. at the time, so that was interesting just off the bat. Um, I was down there visiting friends. She was um, visiting um, a—, you, a were in, you were in L.A. when you met. We were in L.A. Oh, you weren't in living— in, But at the time, I lived in San Francisco, and she lived in Texas. Okay. Um, and so we were both there visiting friends mm-hmm. for the New Year holiday, and each one of our friends knew that we were single, and each of our collective friends had set us up to meet somebody else not oh, each other. Really? Right. So it was a so, party with different people? Yeah. So it was a big, so it was a big gathering. Cool. And so I I was you know, going to be set up with a different woman, right? She was going to be set up with a different man. And so those uh, meetings happened, and neither one stuck.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. And so here we were at this place expecting to meet somebody and the people that we were introduced to weren't, wasn't the right fit. Um, and so here we were and we found each other later in the night. Right. And hit it off, had a lot in common. Um, you know, we, Acknowledged pretty quickly that we didn't live in the same place, and yet we liked to travel. We liked to, to get out and see each other. So we started scheduling trips to see okay. one another um, over the coming year. And the more
0: time we spent together, the more we said, "Well, you know, the distance isn't an issue. Right? right? We could make this work." Yeah, that's uh, that's so interesting. But how your friends kind of di- didn't quite get it right, but you guys got it right. <laughs> the, we correct. were our own matchmakers. Your own matchmaker. End. That's right. Great, uh, great story. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Luke. It's been a, fan- a fantastic. And informative discussion. Thanks. Luke Pena. Thank you, Sid.